through the basic uh, bacterial genetics uh, and protein synthesis, which is the uh, generally what the genes are, many of the genes are used for, is for producing proteins that are therefore then used in the cell. Most of those proteins, I won't say most, well yeah, most of them are going to be enzymes that are catalysts for various chemical reactions. Others are for building um, structural proteins that go into uh, building the cell wall, you know, things like that. Now, the, uh, the structural proteins you're going to manufacture whenever the cell is growing. Most of the enzymatic ones, the enzymes, are not made all the time. They're made when they're needed. It's a, it, it, the cells, you know, cells are using energy to make them. And cells that are using energy to make something they don't need are less competitive than those cells that can regulate, turn them on and off. You know, turn them on when they need them, turn it off when they don't. And so there are a number of mechanisms have uh, developed within organisms to regulate uh, the, the, the use uh, the, or the transcription and translation of genes. That overall is referred to as uh, gene expression. Gene expression is the fact that a, a gene has been transcribed and then the messenger RNA has been translated into a protein. That's gene expression. Okay? Now, there are some genes that are used all the time. Okay, certain genes uh, that, that are part of the cell are genes that make up uh, the enzyme that makes ATP, for instance, or we're constantly making that. Uh, so there are genes that are transcribed all the time. And, and these are referred to as constitutive genes. Constitutive means simply that the switch has been put in the on position and it just simply stays that way. Uh, basically used all the time. Now, other genes, and probably the majority, are transcribed only when the cell requires them. And then when it doesn't require them, that gene, is, that transcription process is shut off. Uh, and actually, uh, there are two ways that you can, uh, you can regulate this. One is to stop transcription. That's the most common method that the cells use. The other method that could be used is you could block it at the translation point. Okay, but again, it doesn't, cells, that's not a good long-term solution for a cell to, again, to be doing transcription of something and then not using the messenger RNA. Okay, because they're using materials, they're using energy. They could have gone into doing something else. And so cells that uh, have, uh, again, have developed means for regulating that's what we're going to be looking at first. And then we're going to look at mutations. Uh, we have really three topics. We have this, we have mutations, and then we're going to look at gene transfer in bacteria. Okay, so we'll look at prokaryotics first here. Um, prokaryotic uh, genomes are frequently organized in blocks, blocks of genes that are normally all going to be used at the same time. These are referred to as an operon. Uh, that name, I'm not sure how they came up with that name. Uh, there were two French uh, microbiologists that came up with that, uh, that Jacob and Manot, uh, and uh, they, that's the name they used. And of course, once it goes into the literature like that, it tends to stay. Uh, these operons are controlled by an, uh, another gene that's called the operator. The operator is essentially the on-off switch. Okay, so let's take a look at how that works. Okay, here's a typical operon. This is not a specific one, it's just a typical. 
This is the promoter. Remember, we talked about the promoter. What happens at the promoter? Right, that's where the uh, enzyme, that's where the ribosome attaches to your messenger RNA and starts, or if you're looking on the DNA, it's where the RNA polymerase attaches and starts, okay? Following that is a section called the operator. The operator is not transcribed, it's just a segment of DNA, and we'll see how it works in just a minute. And then you have some number of what are referred to as structural genes. These are simply genes that are going to be transcribed, and then those transcriptions are going to be made into some kind of protein. Okay? Now, somewhere else on the chromosome, usually not next to this gene, usually somewhere else, is a regulatory gene. Okay? Now, here's how this, how this uh, kind of functions. Uh, we're going to look at, a, at two specific types of operons. Uh, we're going to look at the lactose operon, and then we're going to look at the tryptophan operon, and they differ, that they are kind of exact opposites of each other. Right. So this is the lact operon, that's how it's referred to. Probably the most studied operon in, in the bacteria. Um, in, uh, and this was studied probably more in E. coli than, now E. coli is a typical organism that's used, but it does exist in other, in other bacteria. Now, most of the bacteria, all bacteria, all living things need carbohydrates, okay? Um, we use carbohydrates as our primary energy source, okay? We break them down, we take the energy from breaking them down, we go through that cell respiration process we've talked about, our fermentation, and we use that to make ATP, all right? So that's pretty much a, a common, common thing. Most of the bacteria have a preference for which carbohydrate they will use. And for the most part, uh, certainly in the development of this operon, it's glucose that is the desired carbohydrate. And we're no different. Our cells use, prefer glucose over any, any others as well. We can use other carbohydrates, okay? We, we have the ability to use other ones, but generally they're converted into something that's in the glucose chain of breaking breaking down in order to, to, you know, in order to use them. Now, so here's the, this uh, organism sitting out there in the environment. It's got enough glucose that it's, you know, running just fine. Now, lactose is another possible sugar. Okay? Lactose is, is milk sugar, as we usually refer to it. Uh, it's quite common. Uh, and, you know, most of us are quite happy to uh, have our enzymes break down lactose. And they, it's, it's, a, uh, it's broken down into two different, uh, it's a disaccharide, so it's broken down into two different sugars, and, uh, and it generally works just fine. Now, the only issue is, of course, depending on your background, primarily, you may come from a culture that did not use milk or dairy products uh, for adults. All children, almost all children, can break down lactose because they're mammals. That's what we do. They don't get a choice here. Uh, 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 an, an infant or a baby mammal of any kind that can't break down lactose would normally simply die because that's that's how the nutrition comes. Now we do bypass that today with using uh, soy products or other things on occasion, but that's you know typically what would have happened. But many uh, adults lose that ability. Okay, it's a different gene later in life, 
and, uh, and you lose that ability, and then we say you're lactose intolerant. Okay? And it's, once you know how to manage it, it's more annoying than anything else, uh, because there are things that you would like to eat, and you know what's going to happen if you do. Okay? Uh, it's pretty much like that. Uh, everybody else uh, handles it without any problem. And generally speaking, people who have a background from uh, Northern Europe Northern Central Europe, uh, milk was used a lot there as a, as a, as a nutrient. Generally, uh, handled uh, lactose just fine as they get older. Uh, many Oriental people handle lactose, but Southern cultures, uh, Southern Europe, and down into Africa, milk was not a common thing that people ate. And so, whether you could break down lactose was irrelevant, okay, because you weren't going to be exposed to it after you were in it. All right. Anyhow, lactose is a fairly common sugar in there, uh, out there. Now, here is the lac operon. Okay? Uh, this is the promoter. This is the operon, or the operator, right here. And then these are three genes that are required, or three proteins that are required to alter lactose to bring it into the cell and enter it into the cycle, and into the energy production cycle. They're always transcribed as a block, because if you need one of them, you're gonna need the other two, and in prokaryotes, they simply just do it all at one time. One single uh, you know, thing, okay? And we have all the, the enzymes we need to, to handle lactose. Now, this is my regulatory gene over here. Now, what happens at the regulatory gene? It is transcribed also, and it produces a protein it's referred to as the repressor. Okay, so it's transcribed, it produces some messenger RNA. This is translated into our repressor protein. Now, this repressor protein has a three-dimensional shape that will come over here and attach to the operator. As soon as it's made, it's active, and it would attach to the operator, and it blocks transcription of the operon. Because the uh, enzyme is going to attach here, okay? It comes down and it is physically blocked from going past this point, and so the gene is essentially, or the whole operon is essentially turned off at that time. Okay. Now, so this is referred to then uh, going to be referred to as an inducible operon because there could be an occasion when there was a lot of lactose available and no glucose. And at that point, the organism needs to be able to use the lactose as an energy source. Okay? We say it's induced. Now, what happens is that lactose or allolactose, don't worry about the difference, it's a, just a, 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 something similar to lactose. When there's an excess amount of that and there's no glucose present, it will attach to the repressor, alters its three-dimensional shape instead of being like this, it changes it to like that, and then it is unable to attach to the operator. This three-dimensional shape has been altered, it cannot attach there, and now we will go ahead and transcribe all three genes of that operon. I have induced it to turn on. This is an operon that is normally off. It is not used that often, but when I do need it, I can turn it on and use it. And then if Glucose comes back, which it will eventually. We shut it back off, and then it sits there until the next time it's needed. Okay. 
So basically, this is an operon that is almost always in the off condition. It is only turned on in those occasional times when we actually need those enzymes. Okay. All right. That's one way of controlling the, the presence of these enzymes, which therefore regulates metabolism in, this, in the organism. Okay. Okay, so this one is normally off, but can be induced to turn off. This is a different operon. This is the trip operon. Trip operon is a series of five enzymes that are needed to manufacture the amino acid tryptophan from its precursor molecule. Got to have all five of those in order to make tryptophan. Now, tryptophan is an amino acid that's needed in the cell. Normally, uh, the cell needs it all the time because protein synthesis is a never-ending process. We are always doing protein synthesis. So in this particular case, when the repressor substance is made, it's in an inactive state. It does not have a shape that allows it to attach here, and therefore this can be transcribed, almost like a constitutive gene, except that I have, there, I have a way that I can turn it off when I want to. And we make all of the five of these enzymes, and the cell is able to make the amino acid tryptophan, which is one of the 20 amino acids you need to make protein. Now, occasionally you may run into a situation where the particular proteins you're making do not need as much tryptophan, and you actually have a small excess of tryptophan. When that occurs, the excess tryptophan attaches to the repressor, changes its shape, and now it will attach here and block the RNA polymerase and shut off the operon. And it will stay like that until we use up this excess tryptophan. It will be pulled off of the uh, repressor, making it inactive, and then the operon turns back on again. This is an operon that is normally, most of the time, is on. It's running, okay? But under the conditions where I have an excess of tryptophan, I can shut it off so I'm not using energy to produce something I don't need. It's a type of feedback mechanism. It's a, basically a negative feedback mechanism. When I get too much, we feed back, we shut it off until we need it again. Now, so this is it's the same basic construction. I have a promoter, and I have an operator, and I have structural genes, I have a regulatory gene. But in this case, the repressor, at, when it's made, inactive has to be activated in order to function. In the one before this, the repressor was active as it was made, immediately attached, but I could alter that so it became inactivated, and then this would turn on. Okay? So, just two different ways of doing the same thing. Yeah? So what happens after the Nothing happens until such time as there's a need for lactose again, to break down lactose again. And when that happens, there'll be an excess of lactose, which will inactivate the repressor and turn this back on. And so it's just a constant on, off, on, off, you know. But this one is mostly off because glucose is generally available in the environment 
or the bacterium. Over here, this one is on most of the time because there's a need to make tryptophan on a regular basis. And we just turn it off during those occasional times when I have too much. Okay. It's like slowing down a conveyor belt you know, or a, 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 a fewer, you know, they don't do it this, so much this way, but the old assembly lines, you know, things came along and you did something to it and they, they had to get a, kind of a balance between a speed that got production done at a reasonable amount it wasn't so fast that people couldn't keep up with it. Sort of like the old Lucy and Kate thing. The, the solution to that is you slow down the conveyor belt. <laughs> I mean, that's, of course, that would be funny, so they don't do that. But, uh, but these are referred to then as oculons, and they are a prokaryotic method of regulating gene functions. Now, when this was worked out, and there's many others of these, these are not the only two, there are many others. Everybody felt that, okay, this is great, because we used bacteria to figure out how transcription worked, and we used the bacteria to figure out how translation worked. And so now we could go to the more complex eukaryotic organisms, and we already had an idea of how they worked. It turned out that we couldn't have been farther from the truth, because eukaryotic cells do not have operons at all, okay? This is the way we are. Okay? And so this whole thing, that this works fine for prokaryotic, for bacteria, it does us no good for eukaryotic cells. And the way these were originally discovered is they had strains, uh, particularly for the, la the lactose one, they had strains of, of E. coli that they found were making the enzymes to break down lactose all the time. They never stopped. They were called constitutive mutants because they never stopped making it. And that's how they got into figuring out, okay, what's wrong? What's going wrong here that this is happening? What it was, and the initial one they found, it was a mutation in the regulator gene. The regulator gene never made an active a, a, a repressor that could be used. And so the thing was on all the time, even though it wasn't supposed to be. That was a mutant form. Mutations are really helpful figuring out gene they tell you what happens when that gene doesn't work, okay? Uh, it's uh, difficult sometimes to know what a gene does, even once you figure out what protein it makes. Okay, what does that protein do? Uh, after the Human Genome Project was basically initially finished, uh, we knew what the sequence of DNA was for a small number of people, I think it was four or five, um, but we didn't know what all those genes do. So the next step is, okay, what proteins does each gene make? And then what does that protein do? Some of them we knew, others had no idea what they are. We still don't know. But we like to understand what regulates gene activity. Now, so this is a prokaryotic method. Uh, and so that leads us into mutations, since it was a mutation that uh, led us into understanding that such things as operons actually existed. Uh, mutations are any change in the sequence, the base sequence of a genome. We change any change, any change in nucleotide sequence, that's a mutation. Now, whether it has any effect or not, it's going to depend entirely on where it is and you know, things like that. Many mutations have absolutely no effect. Some of them have a great effect. It's, it's going to depend on their exact location. But 
That's all it is. It's a change in the nucleotide base sequence. Mutations are relatively rare. They do not occur often. We're going to go we'll look at some of the things that can cause mutations here in a little bit. They're not that common. Most of the time, they do not help. Okay? Because your cells are pretty fine-tuned little machines. And randomly changing something in there is rarely going to make them better. Okay? Occasionally it might. I mean, you can't rule out that you might have a change to the genome that actually makes something work better. Just like uh, you know, going out to your car, opening the hood, taking a sledgehammer, and just randomly whacking the engine with it. What's the chance that it's going to run better afterwards? Not, not good. Okay? Not to say that there couldn't be something you, by, entirely by accident, did that made it run better. Not totally impossible. That's kind of how mutations are. Usually harmful. Particularly so in bacteria, which don't have big chunks of DNA that aren't used for something. We've got great big, humongous chunks of DNA that don't seem to have any real function. And so mutations in humans are, are very often simply absorbed into that random junk and it doesn't make any difference. Okay, types of mutations. Probably the most common, well, these are actually related. Let me rephrase that. Uh, a point mutation is when a single base pair is altered. So I had an A and a T there, and I end up with a G and a C. Okay. Uh, this could be done by a substitution. In other words, there was a GC pair. There was an error made somehow that converted one of those to an A, and then when you made your when you did your replication, that A paired with a T, and now you have an AT pair instead of a GC pair. That's that's a point mutation, single single uh, base pair. Uh, you can also do this by removing a base pair. That's another way that you, if you again, we're dealing only with one base pair. You can have one that's that's lost, it's gone. That's going to change things. Now, frame shift is the result of, of these most of these point mutations. Now, remember the reading frame when we did translation. We went down the messenger RNA until we found AUG. Boom, first one. And then we read them in blocks of three after that. Okay? Now, if you randomly add an extra base in there, every codon after that base is now changed and you're going to end up, most likely, with a non-functional protein. Or if you simply remove one uh, base pair. Again, everything after that point, the reading frame is changed. And I have an example here um, of this. Uh, well, this is the typical example that you'll see. I've got a better one in there. Okay, so here is DNA, a DNA sequence. This is the RNA sequence, and these are the the uh, amino acids that that little sequence codes for. Right. Now, here I've had a change. This A here got changed to a G. And this is what I end up with my messenger RNA. There's a mutation there. There's a change. But remember, sometimes a change, uh, many of the codons on the genetic code chart code for the same amino acid. And in this case, 
That same amino acid. I've made a change. Nothing happened. These are referred to as silent mutations because they occur, but there's no way to know they've occurred. Because you end up with the same product when you're done. Okay? Here we get a missense mutation. Here they've, they've gone over here, and, and this location here, uh, that would have been, let's see, this one right here, this G C pair. Here, those have been reversed to be a C up here and a G down there. And now I come along, I get my amino acids. I still get an amino acid because there's a codon there, but it's the wrong one. It's a different amino acid. Instead of alanine, I ended up with lysine. That's a, a missense <coughs> mutation. Okay. I still get something, but it's the wrong one. Now, a nonsense mutation is when you get a change that converts one of these to a stop codon. And then it comes down and then it stops right there and you get junk. You get nothing. It's, it's called a nonsense mutation. So what's happened here is, uh, okay, if I go up to uh, this location here, this A got changed to a T, which put an A, uh, which meant that when we did this, I put it got an A there. And the second codon is UAA. And if you look that up in the chart, that's a stop codon. So I don't get any protein. It's a nonsense mutation because it gives me nothing. That makes some sense? A little bit? Okay. Silent mutations. I got a mutation, but the amino acid's the same as what it was before. And look at that, at that chart of the, uh, of the uh, genetic code chart. And you'll see that many of the amino acids have more than one codon. So particularly if it's the third one, if it's the third letter, they often are the same thing. Okay. That's silent because this is the same as that, even though I have a mutation. Okay, this is a missense because even though I've had a change, I got the wrong amino acid, but I get an amino acid. I will still make this protein and I'll have one amino acid that's different in it. That may or may not affect its function, depends on where it is. If it's right in the middle of its of the active area, you know, the active site, then yeah, it's gonna have cause a problem. If it's out on the periphery somewhere, it may make no difference. That's called a missense mutation. And then a nonsense down here is where we convert something that normally codes for an amino acid, we change it to a stop codon. And then it stops. And when, you know, unlike drivers in Virginia, when the Thing gets to a stop, it stops, and that and that and everything comes off, and we don't go any farther. Now, frame shifts. Here, what we've done is inserted an extra pair. So right after here, right here, we've added a T and an A to this location. And so now, my first codon is still exactly the same as it was before, but now the next one has. You know, everything is shifted now by one, and all of the amino acids after that are the wrong ones. You can do the same thing by deleting something, and you get, you change the reading frame for everything after that. Now, if you added three or deleted three, you'd be, 
having either an extra amino acid or missing one amino acid, but everything else will still read the same because it's read blocks of three. Now, I had another, here, let's look at this and then I'll go back to the, what, what caused it. This does it with, with letters. I think it makes the case a little better. So there's my, there's a little sentence up there, all three letter words, okay? The big bad dog ate the fat red cat. Okay. Now, a substitution, what I've done is I've simply taken the A here and made that an I. And it's missense, it doesn't say the same thing, but, it, but it's still sentence. Now it's the big bad dog ate the fit red cat instead of the fat red cat. But it still reads as a sentence. Nonsense would be if I cut it off right here, the big bad, that's it. That's a nonsense mutation. It doesn't tell me anything. Okay, frame shift. Down here, I've added the letter B between this A and this D. I've added the letter B right here. So now I get the big bad, you know, whatever. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Okay? I've changed all those other words because I've added the extra one. And the same thing happens here if I if I delete one. I may randomly get a word in there, but you know you don't know that anything's gonna fit. That's what a frame shift is. I've changed I've changed the blocks so that I'm reading them differently. So hopefully this uh, gives you a different way of looking at it than one of the better uh, descriptions I've seen of this process. All right, now let's go back to mutation. Okay, so those were the types: silent, missense, nonsense, frame shift, in, uh, insertion, and a frame shift deletion. All right, now, so what causes things like this to happen? Well, one of the things that could cause uh, some of these is simply an error in transcription or a trans. Uh, in replication, or even in transcription. Those don't happen very often. But if during replication, the enzyme put a wrong base in, then that's gonna result in a base pair change. That's a pretty rare occurrence, but we do know that they occur. Okay. Most of the time, however, they're the result of mutagens, things in the environment that can cause changes. Okay, one of them is radiation. We have ionizing radiation. Okay, that would be like uh, gamma rays, things like that, that basically uh, alter the DNA. If they happen to hit, they go through a cell and they hit the nucleus, they're gonna, they're gonna disrupt the DNA. Now, we're exposed to various particles that are going through us all the time. Apparently don't have a big problem, but if you're exposed to ionizing radiation, you end up with damage to the DNA, which is why uh, radiation is so dangerous. Okay. The same is true if you have non-ionizing radiation, like X-rays or ultraviolet. X-rays and ultraviolet can also affect the DNA and induce a mutation. We'll look at a couple of examples of that in just a minute. So radiation is one form of mutagen. It's a physical form, okay? Because that comes out of the physics realm. Okay? It's a physical form. 
We also have chemical mutagens. We have nucleotide analogs. Okay, let me try to explain that simply. What they are are chemicals that look a lot like real nucleotides. And the cell gets confused when it's doing it, and it sticks one of them in there instead of the regular nucleotide. This creates a problem because they don't pair properly uh, and they don't work. There are chemicals that can take a nucleotide and actually alter the structure of that nucleotide so that it pairs differently than it did before. Um, this can happen often with guanine so that it pairs with adenine instead of with cytosine. There are drugs, that, there are chemicals that will do that. That creates a mutation. Um, and then you can have uh, frame shift mutagens. What these are are chemicals that insert themselves in between bases on the DNA molecule and therefore change the reading frame. Okay. Uh, in our, uh, our phase lab, we uh, did, um, we extracted DNA and we did a gel electrophoresis. In order to see your DNA, the gels have a chemical in them that fluoresces, that attaches to DNA and likes DNA. And it fluoresces under ultraviolet light, which is great, because then you can see where your DNA is. Because otherwise you can't see it, it's nothing to see. Um, but again, you always wear gloves when handling that because it's, uh, it's one of these frame shift mutagens. Didn't even bromide is what it's called. No, no contact with bare skin. Okay. Uh, and there are many, there are a number of others that can do that. Can you say ethidium bromide? E T H I D I U M. Bromide. It's commonly used in gel electrophoresis because it has a great affinity for the DNA and, and it. Rest is under ultraviolet light, and therefore you can exact, see exactly where your DNA pieces are. So it's commonly used in labs. And what type of mutagen is it? A frame shift? It's a frame shift mutagen, yes. Uh, in labs that do a lot of this, uh, that have like a, a, a computer set up for visualizing, uh, they, they put their gels inside a little box with the ultraviolet, and it connects directly to a computer, and then you can see the image. We don't have any. Here. But in, even in those places, uh, students or anybody who uses it required to wear gloves anywhere around them. Even when operating, even when touching the keyboard or the computer, everything around it, you can wear gloves. And then when you're done, the gloves get thrown away. What else is another um, chemical like that? Here's the uh, 
N-methyl N-nitro and nitro nitroso guanidine. So all of these are, are mutagens, and uh, in our environment, uh, we, sometimes we don't even know we're exposed to some of this stuff. Okay. We certainly know when we're exposed to ultraviolet radiation, okay, that's common, uh, and, uh, and that creates a problem. This is what ultraviolet light does. Uh, it, uh, it, the wavelength of ultraviolet is in, is in the same, it's, uh, DNA absorbs that wavelength. And one of the things it will do is, if there are two thymines next to each other, it will cause them to pair with each other instead of with their A's across the wavelength. This creates a problem. It's called a thymine dimer. Now, we have enzymes in us that will cut this out and repair. Okay? Unless, of course, the damage is too bad and they may not be able to. But generally, they cut that out enzymes come along the DNA, they see that you know, they detect this, they cut it out, remove it, look across the way and say, oh, okay, these are A's, these T's should be pairing over here, and then the enzyme repairs the, the, the damage. But this is why sunshine is, is a problem, it's problematic, because uh, it does this too. And if you do it long enough, you're going to get one of these things that doesn't get repaired. Is that why they say exposure when you're young can result in a problem? Years down the road, because yeah. as your immune system weakens, then that kind of stuff happens more often. Yeah, this can happen really any time. Uh, and, and that's why they tell you uh, not to wear sunblock when you go out, uh, going to tanning salons and laying under the tanning lights may give you a nice color that you like, but you're risking damage to the DNA in your skin. And so the idea here is that uh, if you if you are exposed often enough, you're going to get a change in one of the genes that regulates cell growth, and then you could end up with a cancer, potential cancer cell. Nobody knows when that's going to happen or if it's going to happen. It's one of those risks of being alive and going out to something. Uh, this is, oh, here's the other one I was trying to think of, 5-bromouracil. This is a nucleotide analog. Notice how close this is to thymine? It's almost identical except for here and here. Normal T and A, if I put the 5-bromouracil the, uh, in, it will pair with A because that's what thymine pairs with. We go through replication. The A goes over here, pairs with the T, everything's normal here. Over here, this now can alter and pair with the G instead of the A, and now we have ended up with a base pair substitution. Next question? Yeah. 
their skin prematurely? Does that cause problems too with UV? Uh, no, well, it may, but the premature aging is primarily, a, uh, well, it depends on what's causing it, I guess. Um, people are exposed to the outdoors a lot. And I wouldn't cut necessarily call it premature aging, but their skin ages faster. It gets, uh, and you, if you've seen somebody who's worked outdoors all their life, you'll see that their skin tends to be more wrinkled and thicker, uh, and, and that's just a result of being out. And, and you do, the more you're out, the more risk you run if something's going wrong. Now, the reality is it doesn't happen very often. But when it does happen, it can be fatal if it's not caught. So that's why, it's, as you get older, it's a good idea to go see a dermatologist on a regular basis. You take your clothes off and they take a, a, a light and they examine all over you looking for anything that looks abnormal. And if they find something, they take their little uh, uh, liquid nitrogen thing and zap it. Get rid of it. Uh, it's not particularly painful and it doesn't take very long. But, uh, particularly if you have uh, fair skin. I go, uh, I had other reasons I go to dermatologists, but I go uh, at least once a year and have a check. And I almost always find something. Usually it's on a facial area, but, uh, but they do find it. And, and they're not cancerous, they're just maybe precancerous or something. I think then I go wait around. Not something I've heard. I'm just saying. Well, you know, you're just putting. The problem is, you're you're kind of stuck. Okay, you can't stay in the shade all the time. This is not going to happen. Uh, and so you have to decide which which is the the, the greater risk. This is acridine. This is a frame shift mutagen. Uh, see how it just sticks itself right in here in between. You have replication. So over here we ended up with a deletion. Here we got an insertion. And so the, the daughter DNA has a mutation in it because this was stuck here. In the, it just inserted itself between bases. That's the nature of this molecule. It can bind such that it inserts itself in between those bases. And you can see how it spreads open the helix a little bit. It's a characteristic of the, of the chemical. And we had the, the big bad dog. Okay, so mutations are rare, okay? Uh, if, that were, if they were really common, we'd all be in trouble. Okay. Uh, life probably wouldn't exist for very long, except maybe at the bottom of the ocean or something like that. So they're fortunately relatively rare. If you uh, go up to higher elevation, they're more common because there's less, less atmosphere between you and the various radiations that come from your space. Uh, people who fly a lot are thought to be at a higher risk because they're because of the altitude that they're at. Okay. Now, Mutagens, now these are just relatively, you know, natural mutations. 
mutations are a natural thing. They happen. Mutagens can increase the rate by quite a bit. And so if you're trying to study something and you want to know what happens if this gene doesn't work, you treat your experimental organism with a mutagen and try to induce mutations in it and see what happens. What genes are affected? What did that gene do? Uh, what happened when it wasn't working anymore? It's one of the things that is not, that's, that's fairly commonly done. You don't do this for people. Okay, these are just some of the repair mechanisms. This is the, this is the one uh, under visible light repairs the thymines. This is one that does it in the dark. This is a, an enzyme that can cut a, a, a base pair out and repair the area. Uh, the problem that you get is, all right, if we identify that the G is the wrong one and remove it and put a T there, okay, then we're right back to where we were and we're good. But the enzyme could remove the wrong one. It might remove the A instead and then put a C here and now we end up with a mutation. It's attempting to repair. But the only way it knows what to put there is by what's on the other side of the chain. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, things that cause breakage of chromosomes are not uh, like well, some of the ionizing radiation causes chromosomes to fragment. And you can't ever put those back together. So you get cell death. If you get enough cells dying, then that becomes a real problem. All right, so, um, okay, so some t terms here. A mutant is simply, uh, in the case here, we're talking about cells, we're talking about prokaryotic cells. That's simply a descendant of a cell that was unable to repair a mutation. It's a permanent change to its DNA. That's a mutant. Not all mutants die. Uh, if you look at fruit flies, uh, uh, which we used to do here in our Biology 101 labs, uh, they had a habit of escaping. People didn't like having flies flying around the building. At least down in, that was in Hampton. They weren't up here yet. Um, but they come in a variety of eye colors. The normal wild type color is red. You see fruit flies, they generally have red eyes. Uh, that's what we mean by wild type. It's what you normally find out there. But you can find flies that have purple eyes and have white eyes and have orange eyes and have plum colored eyes. Those are all the result of mutations. Now, they don't seem to harm them particularly. It's just a change in their eye color. Uh, you can find some that have that, that would be in the wild a problem. There's a wingless variety. They never develop wings. Well, in the lab, you can raise them. Out in the wild, they're dead. They can't fly, they're, they, they had. Okay. So there's a variety of, of, but a mutant is simply an organism descendant from one, from one that could not repair. Uh, Wild cell, these are just the most common type, and the best example I know of is, or I think of usually are rabbits. Okay, at least around here, rabbits are always the same color, kind of a dirty gray brown. And this works great for them because it's great camouflage for most of the year here, which is what rabbits rely on. They don't run until they think you've seen them. They'll stay there, they'll stay there motionless. Uh, that's the wild type. Okay, a mutation to that. It caused them to be as a different color might make them stand out from the background. This would not be so good for them. Okay? The wild types, which you most often find. 
I mean, you know, if you go to a, a show where they have rabbits, they come in a variety of colors. You get the little, you know, the albino bunnies, you know, rabbits. Uh, you can get ones that have uh, are uh, all white with black claws and black tips on their ears. Okay, that's a mutation. That's a temperature-sensitive mutation. In the cooler parts of the body, it produces the pigment. In the warmer parts of the body, it doesn't function. It does not produce any pigment. So it's the tips of their paws and, and their ears. And yeah, same thing happens with Siamese cats. Siamese cats have darker colors on the end of their tail, tips of their ears, on their paws, and it's a temperature-sensitive mutation. So how do we find them? How do we know if a mutation has occurred? Well, we have three methods that we're going to talk about. Um, first one is called positive selection. Positive selection, what I'm going to do is I have some cells here. Some of them uh, may be uh, penicillin resistant. Some of them are penicillin sensitive. How do I find out? Which ones are resistant to penicillin? Well, I throw them on a medium with penicillin in it, and I see who grows. Over here, I put them on a medium without it so that everybody grows. Um, and then if I want to select any of these, I can pick them off this plate. But here's one that grew. This one is, you know, this is a positive selection. I threw them in with the penicillin, they grew. It must therefore be penicillin resistant. Okay. Uh, now, if uh, this is from just a, a regular population, now if I were to take that same population and add a mutagen to it, then generally what you get are more mutant cells, more that can grow. But the point here is I put them in direct contact with something that tells me that they are mutant. Okay. All right, that's one way to do it. Then we have something called negative selection. And what I do here. Now, this is a, uh, an organism that cannot make tryptophan, the amino acid tryptophan. It's unable to do so, or at least some of the, the cells cannot make it. So I initially grow them on a medium that contains tryptophan, so that everybody's got all the tryptophan, they're happy, everybody grows, and you get all these colonies on the plate. What I do now is I take this... This is usually velvet on here. This is a wooden block usually with velvet on it. I know it's not high tech, but it works. Uh, and you'll notice there's a little X mark on here and here and also on, on uh, these plates down here. What I do is I gently press this onto the surface of the plate and the bacteria will adhere to the velvet. Then I come down here, I press them on a plate that contains tryptophan and I press them on a plate that does not have tryptophan. And now I look to see where is there a, something absent here that was present over here? I'm doing this as, uh, by the absence of something, okay? So this one grows right here. There is no colony there. That means this one must be tryptophan. Uh, must be a tryptophan mutant. And so now I can go to this colony and I can pick some of the cells out and know that I have a tryptophan mutant. And this is referred to as negative or indirect selection. Okay, the first one was positive or direct selection. Just throw them in there and see who lives. Okay, done. Here, we're kind of going around a little bit. But we, get, we end up finding out what we need to know. Yeah. So that's why the X is there, so you can. So you align it exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. and pick off the ones right. that you know. Right. 
Exactly. Now, usually you'll get you usually get a few colonies that appear over here, and then if, as long as these are aligned exactly, you will you will see no colony on the on this one, and then that tells you that this one can, needs to have tryptophan added to its environment. We call those tryptophan oxytrophs. They can't grow without having that added to their environment. Just like we can't live without having the the the, uh, the essential amino acids added in our diet. Problems if we don't get those because we don't know how to make our metabolism. We're, we're missing the genes that does that. There are other organisms that are quite happy to make it on their own, but we don't we can't do that much. Okay. And then the last one of these tests, and then we're going to look at a little bit about recombination. Uh, it's called the Ames test. It's been around for quite a while. A guy by the name of Ames came up with this, and the purpose of this test is to determine the how carcinogenic a substance might be. In other words, does it cause mutations? Uh, for instance, we come up with a new uh, uh, fire retardant to put on children's pajamas. It may be a great fire retardant, but what is it going to do to the kids? We have no idea at first. So you go to something like this. And what you have here, uh, you have liver extract in here, but that's because these cells need that. What you have is a, a culture of salmonella. See, salmonella can actually be useful. You'll notice there's an HIS negative in front of it. This means that this salmonella strain has a mutation that prevents it from making the amino acid histidine. They're histidine negative, histidine oxytrophs, whatever you want to call them. They can't make it, okay? All right, so what I do is I take some of the liver extract, which would help them grow, and then I put my suspected mutagen in here at some concentration, and actually you would do this at a whole range of concentrations. And then you put them on a medium that has no histidine. And we get some colonies. How could that happen? Well, what's happened is they have had what's called a back mutation. If you can have a mutation, that changes you from being able to make histidine to not being able to make it, there's no particular reason why you couldn't have a mutation that reverses the original one. Now, clearly, those aren't going to happen very often. But what we're looking for is how often does this chemical, whatever it might be, cause back mutations in the, in the, uh, in the organism. And you can see here that there were some. This is a control tube over here, no mutagen on it. And so, of course, none of them grow because we do ahead of time that they have to have histidine in them, so we don't expect it. Now, actually, the reality is occasionally you'll get a colony on one of these. It's just a natural background mutation, but that's pretty And so you can do this at all different concentrations of your chemical and find out what concentration of this chemical is, quote, safe, unquote, and what concentration is it not safe based on the number of mutations it's in. This is called the Ames test. Commonly used for things, and unfortunately, some things that ought to be tested with this don't may not get tested quick enough. But in theory, you're supposed to test any new product. But How do they decide where the septic are? Um, there's a, uh, a, a standard chart for that. To, you know, for any any toxin or anything in the environment. And the uh, 
EPA or the FDA has set a level that below which they say, well, it's not, not anything to worry about. It doesn't mean you're not being exposed to it. It simply means, well, that's such a small amount as in the normal lifespan of an individual is probably not going to cause a problem. There are some assumptions being made. And, you know, we have so many artificial things in, in our, well, not just foods, but everywhere. Um, all you can do is hope that this has been done properly with those so that they can Now, the other side of this is, is occasionally you'll see in the news that such and such causes cancer and, you know, we've had, well, it depends on what the con how much concentration that they use. If you use a high enough concentration of most anything, it's going to cause problems. Now, what's the actual concentration that an individual is normally exposed to? Okay. Well, I can take enough of that, you know. If I make uh, rats drink... Uh, four liters of coke a day, yeah, there's going to cause them no problems. Rats are not going to do well. Okay? Uh, first of all, they're a lot smaller than we are, but you know, that's a really high dose. So what does that mean for humans? Well, i figure that out. Of course, when I was, uh, work, when I was growing up, I worked in a greenhouse for the summer where they grew uh, hothouse tomatoes. And the mechanics in there when they, you know, it's a moist, it's a humid environment. Uh, bolts with rust. When they had a bolt that was rusted and they had a hard time getting off, they go to the coke machine and get a coke and pour the coke over the bolt to get it off. Yeah. Okay. So it worked. Okay. So this is just uh, these are three tests to recognize views: positive selection or direct. Negative or indirect selection, and then the EMS test. All right, now, last topic. We got about 10 minutes. I know you're hoping we were done, but not quite. Uh, although we'll finish this up on Monday. Uh, genetic recombination. Okay, now we know what sexual reproduction is all about, and you know, I mean, you guys all know about all that stuff. But from a biological point of view, the point of sexual reproduction is genetic variation. It, it creates genetic variation. Uh, when you take DNA from two individuals and you put it into one new individual, you're going to get a different genetic makeup. Uh, and, and this is, is it, the, uh, the idea behind this is, for most organisms, that uh, when it gets warm out this spring, end of April, early May, there will be a lot of ponds around here, and the algae that live in there are going to have ideal conditions. It's going to be warm, the sun's going to be out, there's going to have been nutrients washed into it all winter long from the rains, and they're going to grow like crazy and they're going to reproduce asexually because they are perfectly adapted to, to that environment. Okay, that's great. But eventually the environment's going to change. So while you can all grow really fast together, when the environment changes you may all get to die together because it's changed too much. Okay. So there are advantages to asexual reproduction under some circumstances. Most of those organisms, when conditions begin to get not so great, will switch to asexual to sexual reproduction and produce a wide range of different organisms. And the plan is that no matter how much that environment changes, or hopefully no matter how it changes, there will be some of them that are, are adapted to that new environment. And so the species continues. The individuals are unimportant. 
the species continues. Uh, and that's the advantage of genetic variation. Almost everything we know has a sexually reproductive cycle of some kind. Well, what about prokaryotes? They have one chromosome. What do they do? All right. Now, a couple of uh, terms here. A recombinant. A, cell, a recombinant is a cell that has DNA molecules that came from somewhere else that have new sequences in them. That's all we mean by recombinant. It may have come from another species. It may not. It may have come from the same species, but it's different. Vertical gene transfer is what we do. We transfer genes from parent to offspring. I mean, that's how animals, plants, fungi, that's basically how they all work, okay? We make copies of our DNA, and some of that gets passed on to the offspring. But we don't pass DNA to each other, okay? okay. Going down through the offspring, that's vertical. It's a vertical gene transfer process. Right. Now, bacteria don't really do that. So how do they do this? Well, uh, let's just looking at genetic recombination. You should have talked about this when you did meiosis back in biology 101, and you looked at uh, these two sequences are similar. They pair with each other. There's a, a, an actual break, and part of this chromosome gets attached to this one, and part of this chromosome gets attached to that one, and I end up with recombinant DNA. That's what happens when we go through meiosis. It happens all the time. Okay, that's standard procedure. All right. Now, what about horizontal gene transfer? Ah, that's another whole problem entirely. And it turns out that prokaryotes will transfer genes from one prokaryotic cell to another. Okay, I mean, vertical transmission has no meaning for bacteria, really. It's all, it's horizontal. And so I'm going to stop there, and what we'll finish up with this on Monday, start a little bit into the next lecture, and then we'll have the exam next Wednesday. What's the benefit for sharing bacteria on the